Hey everyone! So, as you might have noticed, I'm recording this morning's message in advance. I was really looking forward to seeing everyone in person, um, but it turns out there's this Omicron thing going around and like everyone's getting it. Now, while I don't think anyone in the Delwood household has it yet, we've had a close contact this week and it seemed better not to risk sharing in case we end up testing positive in the next few days or so. Anyway, I do hope everyone's doing well, especially with Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, it's probably a three-day weekend for most of us. And fun fact, I uh, appreciate this holiday a lot more after taking a communications class on rhetoric of the civil rights movement my senior year, taught by Dr. Rick Rigsby. I'm not sure I realized uh, at the time how useful communications classes would be for a software engineer, but uh, it was definitely one of the hardest and most rewarding classes I took during my whole four years there. And I got to learn a ton about Dr. King, microfilm, and the 60s. Um, I had to work harder for that B than I did for any other class, but I also got to study with Sarah, which was a huge plus. <laughs> anyway. Speaking of communication, uh, I'm honored that today Tim asked me to speak on Acts 1, although it isn't the easiest passage to teach on. We're going to talk about Judas, the apostles, and most importantly, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is alive, and he gives us an opportunity to, to choose to live, to follow him. So let me open up in prayer, because although I've got my coffee, uh, I'm in way over my head. God, I just pray that uh, you'd help us to cut through distractions this week. Uh, there's a lot going on, and um, help us to focus on your word, and that your word would shine through, not my own. We love you, and we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I want to start by remembering where we are in this historical narrative. Luke's writing to his friend Theo about what happened after the resurrection, starting at the point where Jesus gave his final instructions and left. Wait in Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then, like Neo at the end of the Matrix, Jesus rises into the air and disappears. Or maybe that's just how I envision it. Anyway, that's where we're picking up this morning, starting in Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, uh, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So. A few observations, and Jesus said to wait in Jerusalem, and that's just what they did. Well, they took a short walk first from where he left them staring into the sky, but then they devoted a lot of time in prayer, together, in reliance upon God instead of themselves. Now, they'd been with Jesus, you know, off and on for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead, and they'd spent years traveling with him, following him, watching him heal and teach with authority. I mean, they were probably used to Jesus calling the shots. Where's lunch? Uh, which people are we meeting up with in the next town? Now for the first time in a long time, they were together, but also on their own. Alone. I mean, their teacher, their Messiah, their Lord, the one they were literally following from town to town, was gone. Who was going to lead them? What's next? Following Jesus just got a whole lot different and a lot more unclear. So they prayed together and they relied on God waiting on him. Hmm. How good are we uh, with this as a church? Now, it seems important here that Luke explicitly lists the names of the 11 remaining apostles, making it painfully obvious who was left out. Okay, say it with me, Judas, right? 
we get to, to we'll get to him in a minute. But look who does show up, Mary, and the other women. I mean, as we saw in John, the empty tomb was first discovered by women following Jesus. And here, they're an instrumental part in the very beginning of the church. This probably includes the wives of apostles and disciples praying together as they await what's coming next. And I, I love that we also see Jesus' brothers here. I mean, their presence is quite the reversal. These are the same guys who, in John 7, didn't believe in him and figured mm, Jesus was just interested in being famous, getting, you know, the first century Rabbi of the Year award. But now they're here, and they're praying alongside Jesus' closest followers. What changed? What happened? Well, I'd argue that this is some pretty good evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They were faced with something beyond even his awesome teaching, more than even his signs and healing miracles. They saw him crucified, nailed to a cross until dead. And soon after, they're suddenly devoted followers claiming he rose from the dead. These guys apparently witnessed something life-changing because Jesus' skeptical brothers became disciples who called him Lord. It's a pretty good sign that Jesus' resurrection wasn't some story added afterward. It changed people. And as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection is central to the early church. Okay, so let's look at the next few verses and then spend some time addressing the elephant missing from the room, Judas. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, I'll start by saying I'm not a theology expert, and this isn't an easy topic. I find it interesting, though, that Peter starts by talking about Judas and pointing back to David's prophetic words, like in the Psalms. It's actually a little weird, because when you read through the Psalms, we don't see the name Jesus, and, or name Judas. They don't look like prophecies. They, they look like songs and, and poems, cries of anguish and praise, confessions and prayers. And that's kind of what amazes me about this, the flawless continuity of the Bible. I mean, how could a song written from David's life experience foreshadow what was going to happen to a future Messiah? These, these are detailed and stunningly specific glimpses long before the events took place foretelling scenes from Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. I mean, Psalm 22, 34, 69, 89, 110, and others. They're quoted throughout the New Testament, pointing out that what Moses wrote and what David wrote, what Isaiah wrote, what every single author recorded, it wasn't just about what was going on in their time. See, the only way that the Bible could be interconnected like this and prophetic across more than a thousand years and dozens of authors, uh, there'd have to be someone behind it who's not only timeless, but in control of the timeline, knowing each and every person and event, weaving these poems and prophecies together. Now, we don't have to guess that someone is the Holy Spirit, one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal and working in perfect unison. So Peter even attributes credit in verse 16 when he says that it was the Holy Spirit who spoke about this betrayal long ago, written down hundreds of years in advance. Now, I'll admit, when it comes to Judas, I, I don't have a lot of answers. Judas isn't the disciple we like to talk about most, maybe because most of the time, I don't think we know what to do with him. Today, the text tees up some not-so-simple questions, some that we might find ourselves asking about one of the most infamous people in the Bible. 
How does someone who devoted years following in Jesus' ministry, witnessing tons of miracles, listening to his teaching up close, how does someone like that end up turning on Jesus? I mean, why did Jesus, Judas betray him? And didn't Jesus know Judas would ultimately betray him? Then why did Judas, or why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of his closest 12 followers? And afterward, what happened to him? Did he find redemption? Maybe we're more than a little curious because we're afraid on the personal angle to ask, what about me? Am I like Judas? Will I someday, someday turn my back on, on Jesus and abandon my faith, my identity as a disciple that Jesus loves? Is there anything that I should be careful of that might lead me to walk away like Judas did? Let's start by looking at the first question. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, the other apostles called Jesus Lord. Was Judas just an imposter from the start, a fake disciple from the very beginning? I don't know. To some extent, I doubt it. I mean, he, he traveled with Jesus for years, and I don't think it makes sense to believe his goal from the start was to try to infiltrate or, or con Jesus and the other disciples. As with many things, it was probably a slow process, a gradually growing resentment, a small seed of envy or desire that grew. I mean, it's hard to, to know much about Judas because most of the gospel's focus is rightly on Jesus. But the one thing we do know is what Judas got out of it, the payment he got for betraying Jesus. And the scriptures do reveal a little bit about his motives and his heart. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas went to the chief priests. Judas went to the chief priests. I mean, this isn't a deal made under duress. The text doesn't say they threatened him with something like, you know, hand him over or we'll give you to the Romans. It doesn't sound like he was going to get kicked out of the synagogue or have his family beaten if he refused or something. This is Judas making the offer. Judas traded his opportunity with Jesus away after spending years with him. And in the most concrete terms, Judas did it for the money, 30 pieces of silver, a pretty famous sum. I was actually curious, you know, how much would this be in modern day dollars? And it's, it's not super clear. It's apparently enough to buy a little bit of land, although commentators I read say that in, in relative terms, it really wasn't that much. Uh, it might've been around the same amount that the lowliest of slaves would have sold for at the time. But think about that for a second. In one sense, Jesus was sold like a slave to pay our debts. The king of king's life traded for the price of the most powerless. So for those who believe that Jesus is Lord, it really is incredible what, Jesus, what Judas traded away from money. At minimum, we've got the historical perspective. I mean, we know Jesus is one of the most influential people in human history. And most of us would say that he's infinitely more than that. And yet Judas scales, they were calibrated differently. His priorities were Judas-centric, not Jesus-centric. Now let's take a look back at an important moment in John 12, 3-6, that I think might help make a little sense of this, where we see a glimpse of Judas' heart and priorities. I mean, this is a moment where Jesus is worshipped, but where Judas sees a problem. John 12, verses 3-6. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with, his, with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of, of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. We see here that Jesus isn't truly Judas' focus. The money is. Mary honored Jesus, but all Judas saw was dollar signs. See, Judas' heart caused him to look at everything backwards. Instead of seeing this opportunity for worship, he saw a missed opportunity for wealth. And he knew the religious game super well. I mean, the guy just wants to help people, right? Giving money to the poor? Great selfless, selfless observation, Judas. Good job. Who, who could be against that? See, the danger here is that, like Judas, we can get really good at fooling ourselves into believing that, you know, God can't see past our profile pictures. Do you think he knows? He's God. Of course he knows. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. He knows us better than our friends, our family, even ourselves. God knows who we really are, who and what we really love. But do you know what the really amazing part is? Even knowing who we really are, he loves us. Enough to die for us, rise again, and invite us to follow him. Judas was also given a personal inv invitation to follow him, but his response was to eventually toss it in the shredder. Now, unlike how John's book is ordered, Matthew's gospel actually puts these two events, the perfume and then Judas offering to sell out Jesus, Matthew puts them back to back in the text, almost as like cause and effect. And it's worth remembering that Matthew was a tax collector who many would have considered a sellout. And collecting money for the Roman occupation of Israel was literally his job until he started following Jesus. Now at the time, tax collectors weren't known for being examples of honesty. The New Testament labels most tax collectors as greedy and corrupt. So Matthew knows money, he's seen love of money, and the way he records these two events seems to apply that the waste of money moment here was the breaking point for Judas. Now, maybe after years of holding the never very full money bag, Judas got tired of being poor and decided he'd had enough, that he deserved better. I don't know. The text is clear, though, that Judas cared more about money than about Jesus or about the poor. So did Jesus see this coming? Definitely. At the Last Supper with the 12 apostles, Jesus foretells that Judas will betray him. And back in John 6, Jesus says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. And, and written here in verse 64, in the scriptures, we find the next note by the author. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled them. Jesus is the Son of God, eternal, and it's his Holy Spirit that gives us life. As we read through the scriptures from the very beginning in Genesis, there's a single plan, a single story, and it all weaves together through the lives of people we call heroes and villains alike. I mean, God's plan unfolds through the people who imperfectly submit themselves to him, and even through the actions of people who deny him. Pharaoh's defiance, it wasn't unexpected, nor was David's adultery. Peter's denial or Judas' defection. I mean, the Roman occupation of Israel, not a surprise. Jesus' Roman crucifixion was part of the redemption plan. 
foreshadowed throughout scripture. Judas' betrayal, not a surprise. Jesus knew and it was foretold in Psalm 41. And what about Jesus' resurrection on the third day? He totally called it in advance. That's one of the reasons the leaders literally posted guards. So what we're reminded of through Judas and the 12 apostles and the rest of the people in the Bible is that the hero of human history isn't humans, it's God. And as we face good times and hard times, there's nothing that's gonna come as a surprise to him. See, Jesus' death and resurrection was the plan all along. So did Jesus know which of his followers would believe and which would abandon or betray him? Totally, because he's God. And the rest of Judah's story, unfortunately, doesn't go so well. Continuing on in Acts 1.18, uh, and I think this is actually a little bit less confusing in the ESV. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, Matthew 27 actually fills the story out a little bit more, where it says that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Ju Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. We see two things from Judas, remorse and confession. And to me, he almost seems surprised that Jesus actually gets a death sentence. Maybe he just figured Jesus would get imprisoned or beaten. But the text says he was remorseful. He's sorry. He wants to take it back. But he can't undo the sin. Jesus or Judas confesses his sin, and he admits it, but he can't fix it. And the real tragedy is that he doesn't turn toward God. He doesn't repent and seek mercy from the one who can fix it. Verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Last year, Sarah and I watched Star Trek Picard, which is definitely a different genre for a Star Trek series. And one of the really interesting elements in it was the Kuat-Malat, an order of sword-carrying Romulan warrior nuns. Never thought you'd hear that phrase in church, right? Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that before totally annihilating and like slicing their enemies to pieces, they'd always stop and offer them a chance to step aside with the phrase, please friend, choose to live. Or sometimes the longer phrase, the path you are on has come to an end, choose to live. Now, I think this actually resonated with me a little bit because there are definitely profound points in life. There, there are moments of change, of decision, points where, where one path comes to an end and we're forced to choose another, to change, somewhat, sometimes really drastically, if we want to live. See, when we look at Judas and at Peter, both betray Jesus in different ways. Judas for money, and Peter denied him three times for his own safety. But they're both human, and their sins weren't unforgivable. Throughout the scriptures, we see that nobody, no one, is outside the reach of God's grace. On the cross, Jesus even prays for those crucifying him in Luke 23, 34, when he said, Jesus said, 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. See, Jesus' forgiveness extends even to me, a sinner who, 2,000 years later, also can't fix things on my own. So what's the difference? Simply put, Peter chose to live. He repented, he changed direction, and he ran towards his risen Lord. Judas didn't. The difficult truth is that some will turn toward Jesus and some will turn away. So how about the more personal question? How do I know if I am like Jesus or like Judas? Well, we should look at our hearts and to ask who or what is really God in our life. Hopefully it's not controversial to admit that you and I, we're not God. We don't know the whole plan from the very beginning of creation to the end of time. We don't understand the hearts of others, much less even our own most of the time, like God does. We're not in control. Everything from our life's experience should confirm this. We're not in control, but Jesus is. See, at the Last Supper, when Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be betrayed, an amazing thing happens. Each of them goes around the table and asks Jesus, is it me? They don't assume it's Judas. They don't even assume it's Matthew, the tax collector. They don't start by pointing fingers at each other and asking, oh, what about him? They ask each of Jesus, is it me? Because they trust Jesus even more than they trust themselves. See, we're all intrinsically selfish and deceitful, and, and on our own, we, we can't fix this. We're not the God of our own destiny, and we're not going to be able to handle everything on our own. Our need points us to the gospel and the good news that Jesus loves us. His death and resurrection are proof. See, for those who believe that Jesus is Lord, our good shepherd, the one that we can trust to know us better than we know ourselves, we're his sheep. As Jesus says in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. But if that's the case, what's up with Judas? I mean, he looked like a disciple and he fooled the others and probably himself for a while. Well, that's where things get a little trickier. Turn your Bible with me over to Matthew 7. So Matthew 7 is at the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and it includes some of the most well-known sayings of Jesus. Some are actually now so well-known, they're cliches. Today, though, I want to read verses uh, 15 through 23. So Matthew 7, 15. Watch out for. Actually, I'm going to stop right here for a moment with these first three words. Watch out for. Watch out. Now, we're about to get a warning from Jesus. Why do we tend to take scripture's warnings lightly? Well, I know at least for me, my default reaction is to give them the same weight as these road signs. Caution, falling, falling rocks, or watch for ice on bridge. I mean, yeah, I, I know that once a year a rock might fall and I have to avoid it on the road. And if I were super unlucky uh, to be driving by at that exact second, I could get hit. You don't want to be held liable. I get it. Or the, the watch for ice on bridge one is actually even more useless. The original signs had a fold in the middle so they could be uh, only visible during the winter or when conditions got icy. Although presumably that meant someone had to go out from the Department of Transportation and like totally open them. But now they're just there all the time. And like browser ads, my brain totally doesn't see them anymore. The problem I'm getting at is that it's really easy to do the same thing with God's word. I mean, maybe we're just rereading a familiar passage or maybe we don't think something applies to us in our context. But when the God of the universe and his infinite wisdom leaves us warnings and commands in the Bible, glossing over them is flirting with destruction. 
Ignoring scripture's warnings is seriously dangerous. And it's also something I'm guilty of way too often. So with that in mind, let's read all of verses 15 through 22 straight through. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. They come to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they look like sheep. You're not going to be able to tell just by social media presence or because they're well-dressed and don't cuss on Sundays. It's not going to be something that obvious. It's their actions, their long-term fruit, evidence of a life changed by Jesus that will speak to whether the tree is good or bad, whether they're a sheep or not. And, and most important isn't knowing Jesus' name, it's knowing him and that he knows us. So who or what is God in our life? Judas loved something else more than Jesus. He had one of the best opportunities in history, literally walking alongside Jesus of Nazareth for years. But Jesus was not his Lord. And in the end, it became obvious. For Judas hardened his heart until finally he chose the money instead. He ignored the warning in Luke 12, 13 through 14, which says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to be a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Do we ignore Jesus too? Are we too being distracted and drawn away? For me, I, I know there's a lot that can distract me, especially in the midst of this pandemic. I mean, this is why the warnings of scripture are there and they're gracious reminders that life can only be found in God alone. I know I'm tempted by, by comfort, by pleasure, by success, and by money. These distractions are also part of why we're called to be a part of a church community, to be known and to remind each other that Jesus is worth more. But the gospel also turns the idea of faithfulness on its head. We don't have to be good enough or worry about feeling like imposters. See, God is the faithful one, and he invites each of us and all of us together to follow him. As Tim reminded me when we were talking through this passage, the surprising thing about the 12 apostles, Jesus chose all 12, but it isn't the one that picked money over Jesus that's surprising. People pick money all the time. The surprising thing is the ones that devoted their lives to spreading the news of a risen Jesus, even though it got them all killed. See, the book of Acts is truly a crazy story. Jesus entrusts building his kingdom to people who can't do it, but then gives them the spirit of God who can. So are you and I like Judas? Well, if we're Jesus' sheep, the answer is a resounding no. Nothing in all, in all of creation will be able to pull us away from him. At times though, we all struggle with the question, the fear of, am I sure? I mean, is God really good? Does he really love me? And these are the times when we've got to run to him 
instead of drifting further away. So I have an ask, an assignment, and seriously, if you're taking notes, write this down. Ready? Romans 8. That's it. My ask is that this week we'd all sit down with Romans 8. If you'd like to call it homework, awesome. If you hate the word homework, call it discipleship. If you're like, wait, who's this guy telling me? T Tim told me I could. It's okay. But Romans 8, read through it and meditate on it and pray through what stands out to you. Write down some questions, some observations, and some promises, what you learn about God. See, this year, I want to continue by encouraging us to go beyond listening or reading just on Sundays. Like our one goal of getting together on Sunday is actually to share and celebrate what God's doing during the week and our daily journeys. So seriously, read Romans 8 this, this week. I guarantee it will encourage us in the gospel that when we're in Christ, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. So let's look at the rest of Acts 1, continuing on from verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, first up, was it really necessary to choose a replacement apostle right now as they were waiting in Jerusalem together? Maybe, I don't know. Commentators actually seem mixed on this, and I'm not sure either way. Jesus handpicked the original 12 apostles, and later in Acts, he picks Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Is Paul number 13? Mm -hmm. Peter's probably right here about picking the replacement, but it's also possible that uh, Peter's doing the first to act thing that we've seen before. I honestly don't know. And it's partly because Acts is a historical narrative of what happened. I mean, the scripture doesn't really elaborate too much more. Just because someone does something in Acts doesn't mean that's what we necessarily should do. This will come up repeatedly through the series. Acts is a descriptive account of what happened in the early church. It's not prescriptive for how the church should operate today. Acts shows us God's amazing plan for spreading the good news through flawed people, but emulating the specifics of the first century church, that doesn't have to be our blueprint for the 21st century. It's not a textbook for how to organize or what worship songs to sing. Like the rest of the Bible, the story is actually about God's work. And that's the basis for Peter's qualification for the replacement, Jesus' work. Peter says they should choose someone who can testify to Jesus' work from the beginning of his earthly ministry on. And the key, the apostle had to be a witness, a witness to Jesus' resurrection. For the apostles, Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of their role. They're not trained public speakers, but we'll see that that doesn't matter when God's spirit is involved. Their job is to speak what they know, and they all have first-hand experience here. I spent years with him. I saw him die. I touched the holes in his hands after he rose. He's not just a man, he's God. Repent and be baptized. Re receive forgiveness and grace. That's what they're going to preach here. And although we're not apostles, we too are all witnesses. For those of us who are Jesus' disciples, we can speak to what we know, the mercy and faithfulness of God in our own lives. So let's finish up the passage with verses 23 through 26 and who they chose. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. 
Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, we definitely need more nicknames at Church of the Valley. Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabbas, a.k.a. Justice. Funny, funny note, after this point, the Bible mentions Justice once and doesn't mention Matthias again. And he was the one who was chosen. I mean, to be fair, though, we don't actually hear much about the other apostles either, like Thaddeus, a.k.a. Judas, Judas not Iscariot, or Bartholomew, a.k.a. Nathaniel. We mostly hear about Saul, a.k.a. Paul, Simon, a.k.a. Peter, James, John, and a few others. But... I love that there are two candidates here, right? It means the gospel accounts weren't exhaustive. Both of these guys, and probably others, followed Jesus for over three years. It's one thing to be chosen as one of the twelve, but these guys followed Jesus and weren't even recorded until now. And it's interesting that it's not an easy choice between them. They pick these two, pray about it, and then go for the Hebrew random number generator, throwing lots. It's a subtle reminder that God is in control of everything, big and small. So should our takeaway be that 20-sided dice are only? Run a, roll a modified 18 or better and you're playing guitar next week? No, of course not. This is actually the last time in the Bible that it talks about casting lots. And spoiler alert, they're days away from receiving the Spirit of God. That certainly doesn't seem like a coincidence. Now, when I first mentioned this passage to Sarah, she reminded me of a joke where a guy randomly opens his Bible to look for wisdom on what he should do that day. The guy closes his eyes, opens the Bible to a random location, and puts his finger right on a verse. The first one he lands on is what we read from Matthew 27, 5, that he went away and hanged himself. Uh, that was bad luck. So he picks another, and he gets Luke 10, 37. You go and do likewise. Well, hopefully he gave up on choosing randomly after that, because there's a lot of stuff you can take out of context in the Bible. No, see, if we're looking for God and for wisdom, then we actually, we've got to actually listen to what his word says. We can't quote it out of context or use it as a magic eight ball. We have to actually place our hope and our trust in Jesus. Part of this is listening to God's word, and not just on Sundays. We have to take his warnings seriously. And a response should be one of worship to the one who defeated death. See, looking at Judas is a reminder that if we hear Jesus but don't respond, our hearts will grow hard. The other disciples show us an example of what responding to grace and faith looks like. And through all of it, we get to see that God is truly in control of everything. This morning, my prayer is that we hear Jesus' open invitation to us, to change our direction toward him and respond. And as we close, if I may make one more ask of you this morning, it's this. Please, friend, choose to live. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to know you and to follow you. Um, I pray that um, your word would uh, change our hearts, that we would actually hear what you're trying to say to us. And Lord, it's a weird time right now. I ask that you provide comfort and healing to uh, a lot of us. We love you, God, and we thank you that you are good and that you invite us to know you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.